0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's so good to see your faces. James chapter 5 verse 9 through 20 is where we're at today on a message entitled Being the Church. Uh, it's this time of year that my wife usually picks up a, a puzzle for us to do. And um, she'll usually a thousand piece puzzle and um, <clears throat> we'll do it over the breaks. You know, we have the breaks to get all the puzzles done and this year we're on our second puzzle, because we've had more breaks than we anticipated, and so we're on our second puzzle. But while we were putting the first puzzle together, um, the whole family gets involved, and then the two-year-old came in, and she just upended the whole... I mean, like, basically there was like a quarter, a little corner left of the whole puzzle. And it was, it was kind of devastating. I mean, you, you invest that much in something. <clears throat> and, and I was thinking that a puzzle is a great illustration of the Christian life. The whole picture is there, but it takes, some while to, it takes a while to begin to see it clearly for yourself, to, to put the pieces into place and to start to understand it. And how exciting it is when you find that peace that passes understanding, or the joy, or the comfort of the Spirit, or wisdom, or the love of God, or, or even just that, that clear picture of who God really is in your life. And everything starts to make sense and the picture becomes beautiful. However, the most difficult part of that puzzle when it comes to the Christian life, I would say is the church. It's the part that tends to get wrecked, the the part that tends to get messy and out of place where the the wrong piece gets put in and, and something bad happens and it just can be a difficult part of the puzzle. When our two-year-old destroyed the puzzle, everyone was devastated, of course, and, and discouraged. And, and we just, I mean, it was almost like, let's just put it back in the box. You know? <laughs> because usually, you, you know, you, you do the frame first. Well, the frame's gone and it's half have the corner and so I went over there and I rebuilt the frame and I started to put the pieces back you would think they'd all be right where you know kind of in a pile next to each other she's she was amazing how she mixed that thing up on that table but I was able to get it all put back together and I started to rebuild and I almost got to where we were by myself and then everybody else started to come in and started to look and like oh wow okay and they started put and, and before you know it the puzzle was done it was it was kind of a neat experience But God designed the church to be like this, the part of the Christian journey that would be the most difficult part of the puzzle by design, because it's it's that part where you have to maybe get offended and and then go and forgive. Or or maybe you offend somebody and you have to apologize and work through those things. It's that part where you have to overcome hurt, but also exercise wisdom, learn hospitality, And and maybe even take the things that God has given you and learn to share those things with others. And and so James ends his epistle with some of these pieces. And if you're able, will you stand with us? James chapter chapter 5, verse 9 is where we are going to start. James chapter 5, verse 9. James, by the Holy Spirit, would say, Do not grumble against one another, brethren lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." "...confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And Father, we thank you for this text, Lord, that is um, ending out this book of James that has been so trial, trying to us, Lord, maybe, maybe challenging to us. And yet I pray that you would help us to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. Lord, that you would comfort those who need comforting that you would encourage those who need encouragement, Lord, that you would convict those who need convicting, that you would give us what we need this morning, Lord, as we listen to your voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. James, in, in this book, is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And of course, we know That what happened in the early church there is Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, who was a Jew, who hated the Christians, who launched a persecution against the church that was devastating to the early church. And of course, Christians were running for their lives and things were difficult and they were um, displaced from their homes and traveling all over. And then Paul, or Saul at that time, was even getting letters, among probably other people who were getting letters from the chief priests, to find Christians in those places where they'd run and hid and bring them and, and cast their vote against them to put them to death. And so there was a, a trying time. And yet in the midst of this trial and suffering and the difficulty that they were facing in their personal lives, James would say, count it all joy when you face various trials for the testing of your faith produces patience. Oh, you know, I just can't imagine what that would be like. And then, and then for James to come along and say, hey, you know what, count it jo- all joy. And that's not really the way that we tend to think about things when it comes to our trials. We, we had him tell us um, just a couple chapter, just the last chapter in chapter 4, he told us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a time for repentance and that we need to be aware and alert because the Lord is coming back. Now, I know in, in, in James' day, they believed that the Lord could come back at any moment. And a thousand years ago, a lot of people believed the Lord could come back at any moment. And here we are today. And of course, we have more reason to believe that, right? I mean, certainly we do, just like they did. And, and we think that the Lord could come back at any moment. I, I guarantee you that the Lord is going to come back. And it, it might be within the next couple of days. But I'm pretty guarantee, I'll guarantee you that the Lord is going to come back at least in the next hundred years. But I think we have every reason to believe that it could happen today. There's no reason why the Lord couldn't come back today, and, and, and so we should live like that. And so James kind of, he, he helps us to understand what that might look like. As he talked to us last time, <clears throat> he, he said that, um, that we need to be patient like the farmer who waits for the crops to come in. He, he doesn't just wait for the first rain and, and harvest and say that's it. He waits for the latter rain. And then he, he, he reaps that bumper crop too. And so the Lord is being patient and we need to be patient. And so he told us in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. In other words, turn your hearts toward the Lord. Draw near to God that he might draw near to you. <clears throat> and for the Lord, or the coming of the Lord is at hand, he says. And so as we look at this chapter, the rest of this chapter in chapter 5, it seems that James is, is really helping us to see what it means to establish our heart. As we begin to see this puzzle take place, as we see um, our, our place within the church and our function within the church, he gives us some very practical and amazing things to, to look at here. Um, In verses 9 through 20. And so he starts out in verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's saying, hey, the Lord's at hand. It's not a time to be complaining and murmuring and griping about one another. You know, I, I think that it's easy, especially when things are tough. And things right now are tough. It's easy to allow ourselves to get bitter and cynical and angry and frustrated. And maybe that's at the news or maybe it's at other Christians or maybe it's at the people of, in the people of our household. You know, what happens is when we get shaken, whatever's in us is going to come out. And if somebody shakes you and you're full of joy and love and grace, then that's going to come out. But if you're starting to allow bitterness and anger and envy and all those things to, to well up in your heart, it's pretty easy when you're, when you're um, not being jostled to carry a cup of, of whatever you, you have inside of you um, without spilling it. But then somebody bumps into you and it comes you know, out onto everything. And, and maybe it's a, a cup of wonderful coffee and, and, and it spills and everybody's like, oh, coffee, it's wonderful. Or maybe it's just bitter poison. A bitter you know, a cup of hand sanitizer. You know. Oh, you know. You know, but whatever's in you, that's what's gonna come out when you're jostled. And and oftentimes that's when we find ourselves grumbling. You remember in Acts or excuse me, in, in the book of Numbers, it's chapter twenty-one. Yeah, chapter twenty-one, I'm trying to remember. Chapter 21, 22, different stories there. But in chapter 21, it's that story of the children of Israel and the, the fiery serpents that, that came out and bit them. Remember that? And it was because they were grumbling against God and against Moses. They were starting to get you know angry and murmuring, murmuring. And yet you don't find out until the Psalms that they weren't just murmuring, you know, out to their friends and out in the streets. They weren't like, "Oh, what's going on?" You know, like people are today about the news, and you know, you, you can't get into conversation. You know, talk about COVID, the election, you know, whatever's going on, riots. You know, you're all, "Ah, you, you hear this? You see that news?" You know, and everybody's like, "Ah." <laughs> but it tells us actually that they were murmuring in their tents. This was conversations between fathers and daughters and and husbands and wives and children, you know, talking to each other, angry against Moses and against God. And God brought judgment upon them, bringing these fiery serpents among them. He says, don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. As much as we might want to hold a grudge, we just can't. The time isn't right for that. I mean, it's never right for that, but especially now. As we see the Lord at the door, notice what he says there in verse 9 at the end. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is the judge, right? And isn't Jesus the one who told us, judge not lest you be judged? Now, I know it's taken grossly out of context oftentimes. But notice what he says just after that in Matthew chapter 7 verse 2. He says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice something about this passage when he talks about this. He doesn't say, look in the mirror and see, do you have a plank in your eye? He doesn't say that. He just presupposes that you do. He says, don't try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Look at the plank that's in your eye. And so you have to realize you have a plank in your eye. I have a plank in my eye. Now, think about it. Have you ever had anything in your eye? Something really horrible like, just hurt really bad, like an eyelash or something. And you're like, oh, get it out, get it out. And you're like pulling on your other eyelashes, trying to trying to get it out, you know, and having you know your your spouse or somebody, you know, look in there and try to get that, that thing out of there. Rinsing your eye with water, trying to swash it out. I've had a lot of things in my eyes. I've I've had one time I was at the sand dunes in southern color, yeah, southern Colorado, they have this, these huge, massive sand dunes, 700 feet. And miles of sand, just mountains, you know, up against the San Cristo Mountains. Beautiful, and it's wonderful to be there. And it's it's a it's a real feat to be fit enough to walk to the very top of the mount of the sand dunes. Because you know, it's not like walking up a mountain. You're walking up and down dunes of sand, and you know it you lose ground every time you take a step, right? And so it's hard to get up there. But when you come up over the peak and then the gust of wind comes and right as you're, you're coming, it blows it in your eyes. You got sand in both eyes. That's not fun. And so you're crying to get it all out of there, right? I've had metal in my eye. You know, I was grinding some and, ah, got something in my eye, you know, got it out, praise the Lord. But it's, it's painful to have something in your eye, It obstructs your vision. Your eye's all red. Could you imagine having a log in your eye? Like a full-on log in your eye? Now, here's the thing about this, and I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. When, When we have something in our eye, we know what the pain of having something in our eye is like. And when we pull that thing from our eye, and then we see a brother who has a speck in his eye, having known the pain, are we not compassionate and careful? In removing the speck from their eye, having known what it's like to have something in, their, in your eye. It reminds me of the children of Israel as they went into the promised land. You remember they're at Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. And for whatever reason, for 40 years, the, the older people who died in the wilderness did not command that their children be circumcised. And so they all, they're all there on the edge of the Jordan River getting ready to cross over, and they're uncircumcised, and, and Moses comes to them and he says, hey, circumcise each of you his neighbor. Now think about this. If you are going to be circumcised, and you're circumcising your neighbor, how careful are you going to be with your neighbor knowing that you're next? <laughs> Or how careful are you going to be having gone through the pain of circumcision to circumcise your neighbor, knowing what that's like? And that's kind of the idea here. Here we're going to see this this plank in our eye and to pull it out and to realize, okay, I know what it's like to be a sinner, and so I'm going to be gentle with other people when it comes to their sin. It's exactly what we talked about last week when we talked about Psalm 119, 165, where it says, Blessed is he who loves thy law, for nothing shall offend him. You know, if I understand God's law that I'm a sinner, that I've broken it, I'm not going to be heavy-handed with other people who have broken it because I know what it's like to be a transgressor of the law and be forgiven and so I can be gentle and compassionate towards others. Verse 10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. The idea of example there is, is an example to follow. Take the the prophets and their suffering as an example to follow. And I'm thinking, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. Maybe I'd just rather take that correspondence course if you're offering that still. It seems like this subject has come up a lot lately, how God allows us to be an example of patience and suffering so that others can see our lives in suffering. My wife and I, we're going through our yearly through the Bible reading, and we came to Ezekiel chapter 24 the day before yesterday. And it, it kind of struck me what it said as he talks to Ezekiel and he tells him, I want you to put your turban on your head, I want you to put your cloak on, I want you to go out and stand before the people and tell the people, I am going to act as an example to you as to what it is like when God takes the, what is pleasurable before your eyes away in one swipe. And then he went home and that evening his wife died. And the word the Lord of the Lord came to him and he said, Ezekiel, put your turban on your head and your cloak on and stand before the people. Do not put on the garments of mourning. Do not eat the bread of sorrows. Go and stand before them and tell them this is what's going to happen to you. I'm like, man, I don't want to be an example of suffering if that's what that's going to mean the loss of somebody dear to me, the loss of my wife or the loss of, of a child. I don't want to go down that road, Lord. And yet here I am. And we may be facing that very thing. And I think it's, it's in the middle of that as we, as we think about losing somebody dear to us or having to go through suffering and going through something difficult that we have a choice to make. We Are we going to choose to accept God's peace and receive his comfort? Are we going to shake our fist at God and say no? And, you know, just as we talked about uh, in the last couple of weeks, and, and I think that this is just, it's so fresh in my mind, and, and something that somebody said at a pastor's conference we, we went to um, a few weeks back, and the guy, the guy was talking about suffering, and he, he said, hey, I want to remind you that, that this is the only opportunity we have. This life is the only opportunity we have to suffer. After this life, there's no opportunity to suffer. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be with Jesus. You're going to be, you know, outside of that suffering. But now we have an opportunity to suffer. Because there is nothing like suffering that draws us into the presence of God that helps us to experience the promises of God. There's nothing in this life that draws us nearer to God. And as we also talked about, it's like, a, it's like a steamroller, you know, as the suffering's coming and it's going to crush us, it's going to, to plow us under. We can allow it to plow us under or we can allow it to be a chariot that lift us, lifts us into the very presence of God. Do we want to be plowed under or do we want to be lifted into the presence of God? Because that's what suffering has its opportunity to do in our lives, that we can be experiencing God's peace that passes understanding, a consolation of the Spirit, to be able to be that person who sees God in a fresh and new way. In verse 11, he says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I understand what James is saying here. He's saying that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight, right? We all know that, and yet that doesn't make it any easier to live that out, and and that we can endure suffering because we know that the end of our suffering, we have an enduring hope. That ultimately nobody ever regrets following hard after God, even when following hard after God is hard. But I read the book of Job, and and that's where he almost loses me, because I I watched Job and everything that he went through, and I just don't know that I could bear up underneath that. We just studied the book of Job on Wednesday, so it's very fresh in my mind. And of course, you remember that Job is, is a man who is who's upright. He, he's, he's very conscientious. He's concerned for his kids. He sacrifices for his kids every every you know time they have a party. And, and he's just he just loves the Lord with all of his heart. And that becomes evident when, when God is in, in the throne room and all the angels of God are presenting themselves before the Lord, and then Satan is amongst them. And God, for whatever reason, he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, upright and blameless, who, sh- who loves good and shuns evil, loves God and shuns evil. And Satan says, yeah, but that's just because you give him all of the things that you've given him. You've blessed him so much. Of course he loves you. But if you took everything away from him, he would curse you to your face. And God says, okay, everything he has is in your hand. Just don't touch his flesh. And in one moment... He took away all of his wealth, and they took away all ten of his children. And, and Job said, they can I came into this world, and they can I go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he sat down in an ash sheep. Well, of course, then, that wasn't enough. Satan comes back, and, he, and God, once again, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, blameless. Loves God, shuns evil. And he said, skin for skin. A man will give all that he has for his, his health, his skin. He says, fine, touch his skin, but don't kill him. And he was covered with boils from head to toe. He was in misery. And he sat there in the ash heap, and he, he scraped his, his sores with a piece of pottery. And if that wasn't bad enough, then his wife came to him. Of course, she, she didn't die because she's his flesh, right? They're one flesh. But she's so devastated at the loss of her children, she comes to Job in bitterness of soul, and she says, just curse God and die, Job. She blamed him. And if you think things couldn't get any worse, then his, his three friends come to him. His, his best friends come to him. And they're wonderful at first. For seven days, these men sat and just sat with him. They didn't say a word for seven days until Job raised his voice and cursed the day of his birth, cursed the day of his conception, cursed the, the thought that he was even thought of and, and that he existed on this earth. And he, he says, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. And, and that's when they just unleashed a fury of accusations, prophetic visions and dreams that they had about Job. And they know that Job's a sinner and that's why he's going through this. But the truth was is that he wasn't. He wasn't. And so he's listening to these accusations of all of his friends and he's under that scrutiny and he's just being tormented physically and and in his heart from the loss that he's experienced. And yet in all of that, and I don't understand how Job could could come to this, how he could trust God like this, but he would say in, in Job chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I don't know if I felt like I was being slain by God, that I would have the same sentiment. That I wouldn't be just saying, God, why? I'm not going to follow you if it's going to be like this. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that I wouldn't get to that place of bitterness at times. Hopefully I'd come around. But, I, but Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And and maybe you've been in that place, and, and you've been in that place where you just don't understand why God's allowing what He's allowing in your life. I, I know for myself, as I listen, you know, to um, we listen to Shane and Shane a lot of times. We put our baby to sleep every night with Shane and Shane. Alexa, play Shane and Shane. And then, sorry for you online, your Alexas are going off. Alexa, stop. <laughs> every, every time I say that, everybody's like, "My, just start playing Shane and Shane." But, but they, they, they have that song, though he slay me, yet I will praise him, though he, he, I can't remember the words now, yeah, last night I said it perfectly, it was powerful, <laughs> right, trust me. Anyway, though he ruin me, still I will worship, sing a song to the one who's all I need. I mean, I, I think that it, it's poignant, but it's true. That God is all that we need. And to know that in the midst of all my suffering and all my pain and everything I'm going through in my life that I don't understand, that God is in control and that God has not allowed anything into my life that He has not prescribed for me. It's no different than when you take your child to the doctor for that needed operation, and they don't understand why you would subject them to that, but you know for their good that they need to go through that. Those shots or whatever it might be. And yet, because you love them, you allow it, and yet they don't understand. Standing in eternity, Job will be grateful for the blessing of his experience. The key to understand, even in the worst pain or problem, God is in control. And in that, he can bear it for us. He can bear the pain for us. He gives us grace to endure if we seek him for it. I don't know if you've ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's it's not an easy read. I'm not saying, hey, go out and get it and read it. It's amazing. It's very hard to read. And in fact, if you do want to read that, I would say read it in very small doses. Don't sit down and read the whole book because it kind of wrecks people when they do And I remember reading, and and what it is, if you don't know what the Fox's Book of Martyrs is, is basically starting from the apostles, it goes through and catalogs all of these people who have given up their life for their faith because they would not deny the name of Jesus. And we have everything from people being thrown to lions, starting with the kids, on the way up to the father, each one being thrown to the lions and saying, just deny Jesus and we won't do it. You can imagine the pressure of that and the devastation of, of, of facing that. But one, one part that was particularly interesting and, and you know, sobering was, was this point where they were taking people and they were putting them on a rack. If you you're familiar with a rack, a rack is where they tie, they bind your hands and your feet, and they, it's this thing that expands, and they start to cr- crank it, and as it, it cranks, it pulls you until your joints and your ligaments start to tear apart. If you can imagine the the agony that that would cause, being killed that way. It's just pure torture. And yet what they did in in there in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I remember this one point where they said they were gagging the people, they were putting things in their mouth. And it wasn't because they were screaming. This is where it got interesting. It was because they were singing praises to God. Because they were witnessing to the people who were torturing them. I find that fascinating. It's almost as though whether or not they experienced pain, they were experiencing the blessing of God, the grace of God in the moment to endure whatever they needed to endure, maybe without pain, or maybe just so filled with joy in the presence of God in the pain that they were able to praise and sing praises to his name. I don't understand that. hope I never have to understand that. One thing that was another interesting moment was a man who was being burned at the stake and as they're lighting the fire under him, he told his colleagues, all of his Christian brothers and sisters, if the Lord gives me grace in the flames, I will raise my hands. And as the flames consumed his body, he raised up his hands and they all gave glory to God. I I can't imagine. But there is a grace for the heart that's under fire as we sing today. There's a grace for the heart that's under fire. And there's always another in the fire, right? We, we would love it to be just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where we're in the fire and we're not burned up. That It only burns up the things that bind us, right? And there's no even smell of smoke on our clothes when we come out. Hey, that was awesome. We were in there with Jesus. No big deal. But remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? They said, even if he doesn't deliver us, no, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down. We will die for our faith in God. And so it needs to be with us. And that's not always easy. Verse 12, he goes on, he says, But above all, my brethren. And, and this is, I think, very interesting, what James is saying here. He says, above all. In other words, what James is about to say is more important than, then anything he said so far in this book, that would, that would be the implication of that, above all. Now, This is the most important thing that he said so far. Now, I I pause right here and I, I, I contemplate that because I don't know that I fully understand that. Um, Paul says, above all, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That I get. You know, put on love, it's the bond of perfection. First Peter 4.8 says this, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. I get that. I mean, Peter, you know, of course, love covers a multitude of sins. James will say something like that later on in this book at the very end. Maybe he's including above all, all the things that he says from here on out. That would make more sense to me. But I think this is a profound thing. That he says above all here. Because what he's about to say isn't necessarily something I would put a huge priority on. And yet by the Holy Spirit, he does. And so I think that we do well to pay attention. He says above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or on earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no no, lest you fall into judgment. I'm not sure why he puts that emphasis on taking oaths. And maybe you've done that. You know, I don't know if you've ever said that. I swear to God. I swear. I swear in heaven or whatever. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we used to say that all the time. I swear to God. Well, why do you swear to God? Well, because I usually lie, but this time I swear to God. You know? <laughs> And I remember even, I, I remember even soliciting that from my friends. Do you swear? Do you swear to God? Do you swear on a stack of Bibles. Place your right hand on this Bible and swear. You know. James says this is dangerous. You know, one thing that's interesting to me, and, and I I come from a, a background where I, I belong to a, it wasn't a religious organization, but it was kind of a. I don't know, a fraternity. And um, in that organization, when I was a part of it, they made us swear on the Bible to do all kinds of things, good things. And I remember getting initiated and putting my hand on the Bible and swearing to all these things that I knew in my heart I was not going to keep. And I didn't keep those things. And yet there I was putting my hand on the Bible and swearing and, and I, I, I wondered, you know, is that such a bad organization? And then when I came to this verse as I was reading my Bible, I was like, it is a bad thing. Why? Because I'm swearing to God that I'm not going to do them and God holds us to our oaths. And, and Satan would love nothing more than to bind us into a relationship with God that is based upon our works rather than based upon his love for us. That's why when... I went to the Christian bookstore and I picked up a book and I noticed in the, in the front of the book that, that they wanted me to sign a page promising that I'll make a covenant to finish their book study. And I see this in a lot of books. You know, 40 days, you, you go through this book study and after 40 days, you know, you're... What did Jesus say about that type of thing? He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Because a whole new meaning to the devil made me do it. Made me do what? Made me sign up for that book study. That I didn't do. Why? Because God holds us to our promises. And if we swear by him, but also we don't keep his, our word, or we swear to people, it destroys our testimony. It, it destroys our testimony, but then it also puts us into a bondage type relationship with God. It goes along with what he said in chapter 4 when he says, you know, come you who say, you know, let's go to such and such a city and buy and sell and make a profit and, and you know, all that. He says, so, so, all such boasting is evil. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills. So if you find yourself with that, you know, Bible study and they want to make, you make some sort of commitment, then before you sign it, write under it, if the Lord wills, and then sign it. Or maybe you should just throw that book in the garbage. The devil desires to ruin you in every possible way. And this is one of the ways he does it. James thinks it's important above all. Verse 13, he says, If anyone among you is suffering, and maybe he's including this, I think probably he is. Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing psalms. If you're suffering, Pray. I know that when I'm suffering, I do pray. (laughs) I don't know about you, when I'm going through a hard time, when I'm sick, when one of my kids is sick, when somebody's going through a hard time in the church, I pray. I pray and I pray and I pray. I'm suffering in my heart for that person or for myself. And so I pray. I was thinking about, is there any time when I'm suffering when I don't want to pray? Yeah, I guess there's times when I'm suffering that I don't want to pray. It's when I'm fighting with somebody else. And, and, the, and the relationship is, is you know, strained, and, and I don't really feel like praying because I'm bitter and angry, and I want them to suffer. So I don't really feel like praying. I, I noticed this when, I, when my wife and I were young. We used, to, we used to fight, you know, early on in our marriage. The first three years specifically, we fought a lot, and um, I, our, we were both suffering in our marriage, and we were causing suffering for each other in our marriage. And I, and I didn't really want to pray about that. I, I mean, I guess we shouldn't call it fighting we should, because we're Christians, so it's intense moments of fellowship. We had a lot of intense moments of fellowship early on. And, and yet I decided that I was going to practice a discipline. The, the discipline was is that I was going to pray whenever we fought. Not, not like I'm going to you know, self-righteously get down on my knees and start praying while she's yelling at me. It wasn't like that. It was more like in the middle after I said my rude thing and she was saying her rude thing I would say, okay Lord, you can fix this. Or Lord please fix this. I know you can fix this. And I would just start praying that every time we fought. And you know what was amazing? Something interesting happened. And I, I, I encourage you if you're in that season of life where you're having intense moments of fellowship that aren't productive, um, that you start to pray that. Make that a discipline. It's not easy. It's not something you want to do. But it's something that you do because you want your marriage to survive, right? And so I started to pray that. And what I noticed would happen is that the fight would either just completely dissolve into thin air, like all of a sudden it was just like, and we were good, or it became productive. The fight became productive in in the sense that I started to understand where she was coming from, or she understood where I was coming from. We learned something about each other, and that intense moment of fellowship led to sweeter fellowship, right? And so if you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, sing psalms. In other words, if you're happy, pray. Right? Because that's what singing psalms is. It's just a happy way to pray, right? And we need We need to feel. Or I love all the music that we sing here. You know, as as the different worship leaders. Um, I don't know what it is about that. Every every week, one of the songs that was sang during that week, I sing it all week long, and I love that. I love that. And and sometimes I'm just singing. You know, humming along or singing it whatever, and then, and then I realize what I'm singing, I'm like, oh, I'm worship. and then I just turn that into worship. You know, it's just in my mind, but I just start to turn it into worship, and I just direct my praise towards God. I love that when that's what's in there. Sometimes that's not what's in there. Sometimes I go into the grocery store, and the next thing you know, I'm in my car, and I'm, you know, humming along, pour some sugar on me, or some Beatles tune, or something <laughs> like that. I'm like, wait a minute, this is not what I want stuck in my head. I think it's important that we put edifying things in. You're going to get out whatever you put in, right? And if I'm listening to Katy Perry or one of those, you know, I don't even know who's popular these days. But if I'm listening to that stuff and I'm meditating on that, it's not going to lead to good things. If I'm happy, I need to sing psalms. I need to pray. It's important that, that we do that. I think this is a Christian secret, guys. I think this is a piece of the puzzle that we don't want to miss. And that is, if we praise God and we worship God and we go to God in the happy times, then maybe, just maybe, he doesn't have to prescribe some of the harder times. Because isn't it true that oftentimes when we go through difficulty, we're all about prayer, but then when things are easy and everything's going wonderful that we kind of forget about it? Because just like C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us, He speaks to us in our pain, but He screams to us, or He whispers to us in our pleasure, but He screams to us in our pain, right? Sometimes we, I think we would, we would find ourselves in a lot less trouble. Oh, isn't there a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, right? I quote that a lot. I think it's just because it's so true. Oh, what... Oh, what joy we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So true. So true. That's the psalm you need to sing. The song you need to sing. Verse 5, verse, um, chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. What is James saying? Well, he's saying that Jesus is for every situation in your life. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives to all men liberally, without reproach? If I lack wisdom, I can ask God. If I'm I'm going through a trial, I can pray. If I'm going through a good time, I can sing songs. If I'm sick, then I'm supposed to call for the elders of the church. I'm amazed at how much people don't do this. You know, that that we don't actually call for the elders of the church or we don't come forward for prayer and get anointed by oil. You know, and and, and sometimes we need to do that. You know, we just put a dot on your forehead or maybe make a cross or something on your forehead when we anoint you with oil. Um, I think in those days they probably broke a thing and poured it over your head and it ran down on your clothes, but we're a little bit more conscientious than that, so we just put a little dot on you. But we do it out of obedience to the scripture because we believe these things. There are promises related to the word of God, and we believe them. We believe that God can really heal somebody. But we also believe that that isn't really the focus of why we're here. We're here to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, through fellowship, through breaking of bread, and in prayer. And the Lord adds to the church daily, such as should be saved. And, and, and as we walk with the Lord, that he does signs and wonders by the hands of his ministers. That's what he does. We see that in the book of Acts chapter 2 at the end. He does signs and wonders. And, and that's, not the, that's not the focus of things. That's just something that God does. I, I know that there's a lot of churches where, you know, they get people up and they slap them in the forehead and people wiggle around on the floor. And, you know, there's all this kind of crazy stuff happening. And it's really distracting to, in my mind it's really distracting from Jesus it's really distracting from real Christian growth where I can hear the word of God and I can grow by the word of God and not come to church you see how exciting that was you see that guy flop around wow that's crazy we need to go next time see what else happens you know I mean those types of things happen and I get that you know people are more emotional you know and I think God has done some crazy things sometimes and it's it's awesome to see that sometimes but is that really the focus you know, uh, we, we pray for people all the time up here, and a lot of people get healed. A lot of people have been healed over the years, but we never make that really the showcase. And I think that's important. One time, a lady named Nancy, I saw her walking in the parking lot like this. just kind of like, you know, walking along. And I said, are you okay? And she's like, oh, my, I, I think I need a hip replacement or something. My hip's out of joint. I, I don't know what's going on. I need to go to the doctor and find out what's going on. And I was like, oh, wow. It looks painful. She's like, "Yeah, it is." Anyway, I was happened to be up here at the end of the service that Sunday, and I was hoping that she would come up. And she came up, and she sat here, right here on the steps, and I prayed for her. And she was telling me, "You know, my son Simon, he lives in New York City, and I'm he just had a baby." And I I want to go see them. But they live in a a flat that's upstairs. They have no elevator in their apartment. They have to go up all these stairs. And I'm supposed to go to help with the baby. But I'm not going to be able to help carry a baby upstairs. I don't even know if I can walk up all those stairs. And usually they'll get groceries. They'll pull up to the curb. They don't have a parking spot. So you have to unload all the groceries right there and carry everything upstairs while somebody drives away and gets to the parking spot. And and it's not easy. And I don't know how much help I'm going to be to them. And I said, well, let's pray. See what the Lord does. So we prayed for her. And then I got up and I, I just, I reached out my hand and I said, in the name of Jesus. No, I didn't do that. Just kidding. It would have been more exciting if I did, but I did. And I just helped her up because she's elderly and I wanted to help her get up. And as she stood up, I heard it like pop. And she's like, Ooh, <laughs> she's like, it doesn't hurt anymore. The Lord healed her. She went to, she went to New York. She walked up and down the stairs, carried the baby, carried groceries in no pain. Sometimes, but we didn't, like, make an announcement in the church. Guess what, everybody? Come next week, you know? And, and we're not really about that. You know, we're not really about that. But then something weird happened years later. That was years ago. This th- Years later, something happened. And there were a, a group of Pentecostal people in our church that wanted us to be, they kind of wanted us to follow Bethel. And I was like, you know, praise God for Bethel, but I, there's just weird things there that I don't really think are biblical. And, and so we said, you know what? God bless you guys. And they went somewhere else and... And we love them still. That's fine. But there was four or five families that left the church at that time. And that's okay. And and so it was during that time that I was waking up in the morning. And uh, you know that place where you're kind of between sleep and wake and you think crazy things sometimes? And in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool to just like have a service on a Sunday evening where we just did prayer and healing? And then as I came to, I realized how crazy that was and, and I thought, but maybe that's from the Lord, but my wife will shut me down for sure. So I'll just tell her about it. She'll tell me how crazy I am and I'll be like, you're right. And then I'll just drop it. So I tell her and she's like, that sounds exciting. And I was like, no, you're not supposed to say that. Okay. <laughs> well, I had, a, I had an elders meeting that morning. It was, it was five in the morning and I had an elders meeting at six. And so I got up, got ready and I was like, the elders will shut me down for sure especially with everything that's going on right now, they're certainly going to say, well, that's not a good timing. You know, maybe we'll pray about doing that later. I went to the elders meeting, and they're like, that sounds amazing. I was like, are you guys nuts? <laughs> and so we did. We, we announced it several weeks. Well, what was interesting is that day I was doing my class, my early morning class with the senior high, and I come into the sanctuary right here, and Jason Hill is standing here um, by the doors, and he is sick as a dog and he's just like, he's so sick, he, and he's like, I'm going, this is before COVID, and you could be sick in public, and so he's talking to this couple that were, you know, he's kind of giving them a tour around the church, and they were, they just showed up at the school, and they wanted to find out about the church, and, and Dave and Jerry, and, and he says, can you talk to these guys? I'm, I'm going to go home sick, and he, I was like, yeah, yeah, go, you go home sick, and so I, I sat in there, and I started talking to them. I said, um, so where are you guys from? Oh, we're from Prineville. We just moved here. We're excited to be here. And, and then Jerry looks at me. and She says, do you guys have a healing service? I kid you not. Same day. Do you guys have a healing service? I was like, yeah, actually we do. <laughs> you know, I mean, normally I would have been like, no, we don't really do those types of things, you know, but you can come forward after church. No, we actually, I mean, it was like the Lord knew. And so then, of course, every Sunday, Jerry and Dave came to the front. He had cancer. He wanted prayer. Every Sunday, they faithfully came. We prayed with them, anointed them with oil. We prayed for them. Well, then came the healing service, and it was right before his scheduled surgery. And they came forward, and we prayed for them, and they went, and he was completely healed of all of his cancer. And then the Lord did a few more miracles as, as I prayed for him about other things that were kind of coming up and milestones he had to hit and stuff, and everything just worked out perfect. And then they realized they didn't like Emmett Winter, so they moved back to Prineville. But now I'm thinking they're probably not liking Oregon anymore and still going to be moving back to Emmett. Who likes Oregon. Um, did I say that? No, Oregon's great. Oregon's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Just don't go there. Um <laughs> Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another. Usually we confess other people's trespasses to one another, don't we? (laughs) And pray for one another. That's the ministry of the church, isn't it? That we pray for one another. That you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. And and this is the case in, in... the, the illness, if the illness is that you're, that you're suffering is due to sin in your life. Now, I want to say this, because this was one of the difficulties that we were having. Because we've had people here who said, no, if you have, if you're sick, it's because of sin in your life. If you're dying, it's because you've sinned and, and somehow God's, God will heal you if you confess your sin. And so they're trying to drag people, you know, we wouldn't put up with that. You realize that Jesus went to a group of people. Everybody was halt, withered, lame. They're at the pool of Bethesda. They're all there. And Jesus walks into the middle of them. He picks one bozo. And I say bozo because the guy was a bozo. And he says, you want to be made well. The guy's like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here. And an angel comes down and stirs the water. And, and, and I, I can't get by because I'm lame. Somebody gets down before me and they get healed and I don't. So he believes in some, maybe is superstitious. I don't know what was going on there. But this guy is is there, and and Jesus just says to him, Rise up, take up your mat, and walk. And the guy just stands up and takes up his mat, and he starts walking. He gets in trouble because he's doing it on the Sabbath day. And this is how much faith this guy had. They said, Who told you to do that? He said, I don't know. He didn't even know it was Jesus. He just knew that he was healed. And so he went back, found out it was Jesus, and then he went and told on Jesus. What a jerk! I don't want to be in trouble for carrying my mount on the Sabbath day. It was Jesus who did it. I'm walking, but I don't care about that. You know what Jesus said to that guy? He says, stop sinning lest the worst thing happen to you. It kind of implies that this guy had done something, that he had some venereal disease or something that was sin that caused him to be lame. And Jesus healed him. No apparent reason left everybody else lame withered, halt there in that crowd. There was a guy in John chapter 9, remember the guy in John chapter 9 was born blind. And the disciples actually asked him, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his parents or him? How do he sin in the womb? You know? <laughs> Jesus said, neither, but that the, the power of God might be manifested. The glory of God might be manifested. It, it isn't about that. And, and yes, all, all, all illness, all sickness, all everything, it, it's all due to sin, Because we live in a fallen and sinful world. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you sin, that you have some infirmity. Sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. In this in, in in this case, he's saying, hey, if they did sin, and this is a beautiful thing, if they did sin, then they can be healed. I think it's important when we do confess our sins to one another, and sometimes it's important to get with a group of guys and confess your sins or a group of women and confess your sins. I think it's important to do that to go to a friend and confess your sins. but I think sometimes that can be sketchy too. I think sometimes people confess sins in public form that they never should confess in fact, one time um, a woman at our at our um, at our women's retreat, brought another woman up and just started in front of everybody saying, well, you know, I've always hated you and these are the reasons why. (laughs) And I confess this to everybody. Well, thank you. (laughs) You know, know, Edwin Orr, he said, you should confess into the sphere of those who have been affected by it. It's not necessary to go beyond that because some things can be destructive beyond that. And it's also important that you give the person affected by your sin the opportunity to forgive and restore without an audience or without embarrassment. And and I think it's important as Christians that we do that. He says that you may be healed. Some are sick because of bitterness. Others are sick because of physical ailments due to drug use or promiscuity. Confess and forsake and trust God for healing. What's more important is that he forgives your sins. You know, it's interesting. Jesus healed a lot of people. And before he healed them, he said, your sins are forgiven you. That's what, that's what upset the religious leaders, that he would forgive their sins. He says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or take up your bed and walk? That's the real healing that we need verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. That's amazing. Man, to have faith like that, right? And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You look at Elijah, and you you look at his life, and you're like, man, that guy was a stud muffin, muffin of faith, right? The guy... He just had faith in God to do amazing things. When it did rain, remember he saw the, the, the cloud the size of a man's hand, and Gehazi tells him, or I guess I can't remember what it is, that was Elisha's guy. Anyway, it doesn't matter. His, his, his servant said, hey, there's a cloud, and he's like, it's going to rain. And he goes and tells Ahab, get back to your palace, it's going to rain. And Ahab gets in his chariot and he furiously rides back to his palace. And like Superman, Elijah outruns the chariot and he meets him at the gate. And he's sitting there at the gate when he, he pulls in. He's like, it's like, how did you get here? On foot. Supernatural. I mean, just the guy was, he, he called down fire on the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Asher. The guy was amazing. But then Ahab went in and told Jezebel and Jezebel's like, I'm going to have his head. And he freaked out, and he ran away like a coward. And he was in the wilderness, and he's like, God, I, I can't do this. I'm the only one. Nobody cares about you but me anymore. God told him to get some triactin. Mm-hmm. Triactin like a man of God. He says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed, bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 in Israel. You know, what, you know what Elijah wanted him to do? He wanted him to kill him. Just kill me. It's not worth it. I'm the only one that loves you. God's like, no. Come on. Grow up. (laughs) But what would happen to Elijah later? Later, Elijah would be there and God's chariot of fire would come down in a whirlwind and take Elijah up. If If God would have killed him and taken him out, he would have missed the chariot of God. How many of us have said, God, you might as well just kill me. It's just too hard. We've been there, probably. And yet, we miss the chariot of God if we just want to end it all. God is so much bigger than that. He tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. Imperfect. God uses imperfect people. Satan uses self-righteous, seemingly perfect people. But God uses imperfect people. It's in our weaknesses that he's made strong. Verse nineteen he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. I think that he this is part of the above all else. We're here to help each other out, not to condemn, judge, or grumble against each other, but to help each other. To take out that plank so that we can help our brother in his difficulty. We might help him along the path that he, we might bring him back into the fold. Jude, James' brother, and also Jesus' brother, said something very similar in his book, his little book right there before Revelation, only one chapter. He says in verse 21, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction but others save with fear, pulling them from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, he's saying, when we see somebody in error, we see somebody going off the rails, that we're to come alongside of them with compassion. But other people, you grab them by the nape of the collar and say, come on, knock it off. I love you too much to let you go down that road. I had a friend who... Um, was in ministry with me early on. I was just in my 20s. I was pretty young. And he was in ministry. Actually, I might not have even been 20 yet. I might have been 19. I think I was probably 19. And, and my friend was, he started acting different. And there was something off with him. Like there was, something wasn't right. And he started acting really proud and cynical and stuff. And I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? And, and I felt like the Lord was telling me to go to him and confront him. And I didn't know what was going on. I knew he was in a relationship, but I didn't know what was going on with it. And so I, I didn't want to go, but I did. And I, I said, hey, you know, I don't know what's going on, man, but I just feel like something's off with you. I feel like you, you're, there's something going on, and I'm, I, just, I just feel like I'm supposed to come to you and tell you, hey, you need to get right. Your walk with the Lord, you know, I feel like it's maybe not in the right place. And, and I don't know what's going on, but I just... I just I feel like the Lord told me to come and tell you that. I did not want to go and tell him that. Honestly, I think that if, if the Lord sends you to correct somebody and you want to go and tell them and you want to set them straight, you're probably not sent by the Lord. I'll just say that. <laughs> now, I was really broken, and I went to him, and he's like, Oh, I'm fine, man. Everything's good. And everything's, you know. I was like, Okay, I, I'm praying for you. you know? And I, I left, and I was just kind of heavy-hearted about it. Well, a week later, he came to me and said, "You know, I was doing all this, and I didn't realize how bad it was. And he broke it off, and he did what was right, and he repented. And he says, it's because you came to me the way you did. He said, if you'd have been in my grill, I wouldn't have listened to you. But I could tell you love me. And I think that it's important that we do that for people, that they know that we're coming, that our motivation to come to them isn't to set them straight, and they're not you know, following the straight and narrow, but that because we love them. And we love them. It's the love that draws them to repentance, right? It's the love of God that draws us to repentance, and, and he, he did. He repented, and now he's, he's pastoring a church, and he's, the Lord's using him mightily. And that's what the church is for, is to help one another out, to, to bear one another's burdens, and to carry one another. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for just the opportunity to be able to come here, Lord. And we do pray for those who are going through sorrow and and difficulty. We pray for the Luke family. We pray for just the, just the many things that are going on in this world right now. All the uncertainty and all the stress and, you know, all the people who are, are fleeing to come here. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the right attitude towards those people. That you give us grace, Lord, as a church in this time, in this important time, we do feel that your, your coming is near. I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus. That we would use this opportunity that we have now to tell people about the love that you have for them. That there is hope in this hopeless world. We thank you, Jesus, that we can live in such a time. And we can keep our eyes on the prize. And believe, Lord, that you are coming soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?